Hello and welcome to the second episode of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics with your hosts, Peter Avaji and myself, Peter Lim. We're podcasting here from the auditorium uh, at the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing. And as I came up the stairs uh, today uh, in the auditorium and saw the murals from the 1930s, I was reminded of some African murals, um, uh, in, uh, uh, including those of the famous Mozambican muralist Malangatana, an old friend of mine, and the fact that he had kindly given permission to reproduce uh, one of his murals about peace in Africa uh, to bedeck H. Luso Africa, the Lusophone African listserv and website which is based here in Matrix. And I also was reminded today, uh, listening to an excellent talk on Diego Rivera and Detroit and um, also his murals in Mexico, that uh, in some of those murals he's depicting African women. Anyway, enough of murals. Today's program focuses on sport, cinema and literature. In the first segment, Peter Alegi reports on the first round of matches of the 2008 African Nations Cup being played in Ghana. And in the program's second segment, Michigan State University professors Ken Harrow and Safwa Babena Hampton join us to discuss contemporary African cinema and its very intriguing connections to African literature. Football, or soccer as they say in America, is Africa's game, and the African Nations Cup is the continent's premier sporting event. The first tournament was held in 1957. That's three years before the Europeans held their first European championship, by the way. Egypt is the title holder and has won it five times. Cameroon and Ghana have won it four times. This year, the tournament is taking place in Ghana. What's very interesting about this tournament is the number of players African players who are actually based in Europe. There are more than 130 players participating that are professionals based in Europe. 57 play in France, 46 in Britain, 11 in Germany, 10 in Italy, 9 in Spain, and there's even a major league soccer player, Buna Kondul, who is one of Senegal's goalkeepers, went to high school uh, in New York City. And there have been some wonderful matches so far, and I think the best teams have been uh, Ivory Coast, and perhaps Ghana, uh, with Egypt uh, a close second. Uh, fabulous uh, goal scored by Didier Drogba, uh, great midfield play from Yaya Toure, and excellent goalkeeping from Boubacar Barri. All three of these players are stars of the Ivory Coast side that, in my opinion, is going to emerge champion in this tournament. Uh, rising teams in terms of momentum, I would say Cameroon uh, and Nigeria. Uh, Cameroon has just uh, qualified as uh, the second team in Group C with a very big victory, a 3-0 victory uh, over Sudan. And in this game, Samuel Eto'o broke Ivorian striker Laurent Pocou's goal record for the most number of goals in all African Nations Cup tournaments. Uh, Eto'o has now scored 15 goals and uh, Pocou had uh, the record of 14 in the late 60s and uh, early 70s. The biggest surprise, I think, has been Angola in the way that they have maintained the good form from two years ago in their first World Cup appearance. And they've been powered by two great strikers, 
probably the, the most uh, famous one is the 24-year-old Manusho of Petro Atletico in Luanda. And he just signed also a three-year contract with Manchester United, though I think his work permit is still pending. And the biggest disappointments in the tournament, I think, so far have been Senegal, South Africa, and also Morocco. And I'm particularly concerned about South Africa because it's close to my heart. Uh, they fielded a very young team and um, they played in a very disappointing fashion uh, against Tunisia, particularly in their defending. Uh, they play their final group match against Senegal uh, tomorrow in Kumasi. So as it stands right now, the quarterfinals on the 3rd of February, we'll see Ghana play Nigeria in what promises to be a real cracker of a match. Uh, also the same day on Sunday, Ivory Coast should have a, an easy time against Guinea. And on Monday, February 4th, Egypt will probably play Angola. And on the same day, later in the uh, evening, Tunisia will match up with Cameroon. And so as it stands, here are my predictions. In the semifinals, we'll see Ghana against Ivory Coast and Egypt against Cameroon. And the final on February 10th, I predict Ivory Coast against Egypt in a rematch of the 2006 final played in Cairo. But this time, I see Ivory Coast uh, taking home the prize. And so in our next podcast, I will give you my uh, wrap-up of the African Nations Cup, the greatest soccer tournament in Africa. Well, it now gives me very great pleasure to introduce Ken Harrow, uh, who is Professor of African Literature and Cinema here at MSU. Uh, a little bit about Ken. Um, he was a Fulbright Professor at the University of Yaoundé in Cameroon from 1977 to 79, a Fulbright Research Scholar in Dakar from 82 to 3, and returned there to Dakar uh, in 2005-06 as a Senior Fulbright Professor. Amongst his uh, many writings, uh, several very interesting books, uh, Thresholds of Change in African Literature in 1994, uh, Less Than One and Double, A Feminist Reading of African Women's Writing in 2002, uh, also translated into French by Lamartin. And Ken has edited numerous collections on other topics such as Islam and African Literature and Women in African Film. His latest book, which will be the focus of our discussion today, is Postcolonial African Cinema, published by Indiana University Press in 2007. I might also add that Ken is a scholar activist and has for a very long time been fighting for human rights, particularly in areas such as uh, Rwanda and the DRC. Uh, a little bit about uh, the courses that Ken teaches here. Uh, the core of his scholarship has turned on African culture and uh, his primary concerns have always included questions of political commitment. His recent courses have focused on questions of illegal emigration, cross-border transmigration and the production of African culture from within the continent and abroad. Savoie Babana Hampton, who also joins us uh, here today, is Assistant Professor in the Department of French, Classics and Italian at MSU. Safwa is from Morocco and she researches uh, post-colonial theory and francophone studies in the Maghreb, in West Africa and the Caribbean. Uh, Safwa is also interested in the post-colonial intellectuals uh, discourse on modernity. And if we're going to talk about post-modernity, I think it's very helpful to know uh, what modernity is and how it is discussed. 
Um, Safar looks also at francophone women and uh, their autobiographical narratives and writing in the public sphere in North Africa. The English translation of the title of her forthcoming book, uh, which is published in French, is, and I hope I'm right here, Safar, Literary Reflections on Moroccan Public Space in the Work of Abdelatif Labi, being published in 2008 with Summa. Uh, welcome, Ken and Safar, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Perhaps I can start by uh, asking Ken to elaborate a little on the very intriguing themes of his latest book, which is subtitled From Political Engagement to Postmodernism. And I must say this is a splendidly illustrated book uh, uh, with many uh, screenshots uh, from a wide range of, uh, uh, of older and recent African films. Ken, perhaps I can just start by asking you that you very effectively decenter an African, an authentic uh, African cinema in your in your book. I just wonder what the motives were for taking this tack, and how successful do you think this book is in grappling with these very important questions today? Well, I have no idea how successful it is. I'll leave that to you. I think there are certain key concepts and terms that recur repeatedly in the study of African um, culture, and I, I label them at times shibboleths. One of the shibboleths in our field is that of authenticity. It never seems to want to go away, the notion that we can put our finger on that authentic truth that will give us the, the, the true reality, or if you will, even the insider's reality of the culture. And I feel that that shuts off conversation. It shuts off understandings of cultural texts because it provides closed answers. And that's precisely what any interesting text um, will move away from, simply closing off the answers. One of the movies that made the greatest impression on me as a young teenager uh, was Gillo Pontecorvo's Battle of Algiers, which I still right. use in the classroom and students still love, and it, it is a mesmerizing film. And, and I was a little disconcerted by uh, your book and the way that it criticized this kind of cinema of struggle, uh, the cinema of revolt, the cinema uh, uh, of uh, uh, populist resistance to colonialism, uh, which of course Ben Uzman then goes on to use as a critique of neocolonialism uh, and, and Western power and African dependency and so on. Because it seems to me that while you're criticizing and you're uncomfortable uh, with the kind of narratives and structures that these movies that Usman and Ponte Gorvo and others have made, uh, they seem still very much as uh, uh, movies that are influential and that are quite popular. And it seems to me something worth discussing. Why is it that these movies that you find so problematic in a lot of ways and so limiting and constraining are actually movies that people look up to as great examples of African cultural production? Well, I think for the same reason that I criticize the term authenticity, people look for answers. And if the answers are strong and fit with the understandings of the world which people want to have, then they'll accept those answers without, uh, without looking to the subtleties or nuances that might be uh, overwritten by those, by those strong answers. I don't want this, uh, this is a very delicate position to be in because I don't want to give the impression that I'm opposed to a cinema of revolt. In fact, I support it. And if anything, this is a self-critique because I was as much enmeshed in the Marxist criticisms of the 60s and 70s 
um, of, uh, of African culture and of culture generally. And I still adhere to, to those values. But it seems to me that we can't, we, we can't take what people have called the vulgar Marxist uh, approach and be content with it. We have, to, we have to be open to critique at every level. And it's critique that demands something more than straightforward uh, authenticity and straightforward truths. And, and these are really the, the keys. If, if, our, if our critique is ever really to be successful, it has to go beyond simply questions of mobilization for a cause. And sure. Yeah. That, that's a very important point. If we move beyond the, the world of film directors uh, into the back alleys of Nollywood or even experimental films that are going on with cell phone cameras or digital cameras and maybe being uploaded to YouTube or its equivalents, um, how does this blur the picture or maybe it doesn't? Well, everything becomes conventional after, after a while. So the conventions of postmodernism are that the, that the line between high culture and, and popular culture um, has become effaced. And um, this is what has been resisted by African filmmakers for up, until the, uh, up until the mid-1990s. That is to say, African filmmakers saw their charge as not entertaining an audience, but educating an audience. And those few, few exceptions, um, like Henri Duparc, who's uh, Ivoirian, who tried to make films that were more entertainment films, were trashed, in fact, by the critical reception that, that, that was given to them for, for those reasons. Since the mid-1990s, since the Ghanaians first started making video films and now the Nigerians have picked it up, there have been thousands of video films made on the continent. And that has actually saved African cinema from its demise. And what I mean by that is it's not simply enough to scramble and get the money and make it film. It has to be shown somewhere. It has to be received somewhere. And we all know that, that celluloid film uh, production, distribution, exhibition in Africa has been in an enormous decline. Almost all the theaters in Dakar, all the theaters in downtown Dakar are closed. All the theaters in countries like Chad and Niger are now closed. And the only place where people can see movies anymore is in the form of, of DVDs or, or video, what's, what have been called video films. And that kind of film actually is, is looking to re relate to an audience in a way which is totally the opposite of the earlier films, non-ideologically, non-didactically, or if it's didactic, they'll include the very things that were rejected at the outset, which would be religious values, for example, or notions of traditionalism that were called into question um, in the earlier years. I, I think that the open-minded critic has to be really available to, to all, of these, all of these enterprises. I think, I, I know that, for example, in, in Ghana, there's a huge gap between the old guard filmmakers who call all this trash and did their best, in fact, to keep that industry from, 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 from uh, surviving, whereas now it is the only place where film is being made. And it's, to me, it's, it's wonderful and fascinating to try and read these films and read them, meaning not simply sit back passively, but actually read them as, as uh, as Safwa says, as expressive of the self, of the matière, of the culture, of the, of the space, and especially of the fantasies, which are particular to the, to the societies in which they're being created. Fantasy, that's the key word here. It's the, it's, the, it's the word on which these films are turning. The production of film as a finished Hollywood-type article 
cost millions of dollars. And for that reason, African filmmakers have been increasingly cut out of that kind of cellul celluloid film production and the kinds of audiences that have been developed to watch those films. It took really, I, I would say, the genius of the Ghanaian and Nigerian filmmakers to break that, to break that kind of filmmaking practice, to find a way to make now $100 million a year or more, 1,000 films, maybe 2,000 films are made every single year in Nigeria. And the rest of the continent has picked up on that. Places where films were not made or had stopped being made are now beginning to produce video films. Places like Cameroon, for example, are, are really getting into it, and Chad. I think that's fabulous. I mean, it's, it's the survival. And it's an artisanal filmmaking practice because these films are churned out. I know in Ghana, Safo Sokrat turns out a film a week with his, with his studio. So we're, we're not talking about the finely polished work of, of, of high culture that can take a year to be produced and take millions, but rather a work that can take $10,000 or $20,000 and be produced rapidly. But it's on terms of production in an African setting that becomes possible. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, let me give you an example of a Moroccan uh, artist who's not a filmmaker, but, but uh, he's someone who considers himself a hybrid artist and refuses to call himself a writer or, uh, or you know, or sculptor. Or, uh, he situates himself in an interesting crossroads uh, in that he uh, very boldly flaunts the material with which he produces his art. His work, Miniatures, Miniature, um, it was written uh, originally in French and he translated it into Moroccan dialect. But the book, you can't hold it in your hand because the book is, uh, is exhibited in a gallery. <laughs> so the page of the book is basically a wall or like half a wall. And it's written in Darija, Moroccan dialect. Um, and not only that, but you know, the, as far as hybridity is concerned, uh, the the way it is written is reminiscent of you know a calligraphic style of writing, which is reserved historically to sacred texts yeah. and to uh, learned uh, to learned uh, Arabic uh, and expression. Uh, and Darija uh, has been associated uh, with you know, low culture, popular culture, and you know, the, the uh, les incultes, <laughs> uh, uncultured, b basically with the uncultured people. So uh, he boldly, you know, makes these connections between high and low, uh, and uh, various modes of expression, verbal, nonverbal, visual, uh, um, acoustic, uh, and, and so, and, and in addition to that, he borrows images from popular culture to illustrate his book. And the book cannot be read in any particular order because you enter the room and you're surrounded by the book. So you're inside the book in a way. Mm. Um, and it is an, an amazing, I think, way of uh, really uh, defining uh, and situating himself uh, in relation to uh, certain trends. Uh, his next project is the Wandering Book. So this one is a gallery, but, but his next project is going to be The Wandering Book. So he's going to uh, go on a tour <laughs> where the book is displayed in the popular market. And uh, for those of you who visited probably uh, uh, North Africa or even um, 
West African countries, you know, the, there's always like the souk or popular markets, and you have the more modern, you know, supermarket. And it's an open air market, and uh, usually uh, the the goods and the products are sold under a tent, and so there's this uh, the feeling of a big uh, mesh of things, and and the feeling of being uh, a speck in a big uh, kind of <laughs> in a flux of of things, interconnected things. Uh, and the book is going to be uh, set and presented in that kind of context where uh, it is one object amongst many others and there isn't really the sense that the book is above and it represents something that's hierarchically you know, lower or outside it. So I'm wondering whether what you might say about pulling these threads together and how they connect. Ken, you mentioned globalization earlier mm. and Safwa, you mentioned um, hybridity and these wanderings and I'm just wondering um, is there in this country for instance amongst uh, African-American communities or what Ali Mazrui calls American-African communities what do you think the response to these new playful genres in literature or cinema have been um, and in turn I mean other diasporan communities writing back or filming back to Africa? In other words, what is the connection at the moment between these different communities? I think, I think globalization forces us to ask any question like that, um, interrogated in terms of location. Where are you when you're asking that question? From what point of view are you regarding the world when you're asking the question? So that I know that, for example, when my students talk about globalization, it's in the it's in the f it's it's the vision of a world in which the borders no longer prevent them from going from one place to another or being able to go from one place to another. Borders don't hold them back anymore, and they have this notion that this is now the condition in the world that people can go where they want. Whereas, in fact, the film frontier that you're referring to, or any film coming out of Africa, any book coming out of Africa today, or all the news coming out of Africa, was about the way in which this is a one-way flow. That is to say, the the barriers have been put up around the West, around Europe, and around the United States so as to create enormous fortresses and the ability of people with money and power to cross over those barriers going in the one direction is, has no counterpart with the, front, with the people on the other side who uh, don't have either the money nor, in fact, the power to get the visas, to get the airline tickets, and to cross over. So it's desperate stories. Frontier is about the desperation of people trying to make their way across the Sahara, across the Mediterranean, into Europe, and who die in the process. And, I, I, and if we're going to be wrapping up soon, I want to refer to our, our, our film series, the second film of which, in fact, is called Bamako, by one of my favorite filmmakers in the whole world, Abdurrahman Sisako. And it's a film about a mock trial of those who are responsible for the economic conditions of globalization for the debt in Africa and for the way in which Africa has been squashed by the World Bank. Just a reminder, this film is going to be shown on January 31st at the Residential College uh, Theater at 7.30 and it's free and open to the public. Right, Snyder Phillips um, Residential College and it's free So and it's at 7.30 I think. So yeah, everyone should come and watch. It's an amazing film which puts on trial. If you remember during the Vietnam War, that's what, that's what Sartre and uh, the other intellectuals of his day put America on trial for the war. Now this is the trial which Africans need 
in order to have their voices heard about the economic conditions that they're facing. Anyway, my point was that, yes, this is like all postmodernisms, like all globalizations. They look one way when you're sitting here in the auditorium in East Lansing, in, in the comfort of our, of our university, and it looks enormously different when you're sitting on the other side of the ocean. That might be a rather sobering point on which to conclude. I thank you all for taking part. Thank, thank you. you. last portion of the program, we have a few events to tell you about. In the MSU film series, which is free and open to the public, the next film will be shown on Thursday, February 14th at the Residential College's Snyder Phillips Theatre at 7.30 p.m. The title is Thomas Sankara, The Upright Man. It's a film from Burkina Faso. And the film recovers for the present the detailed history of Sankara's four years in power and his program for African self-reliance as an alternative to laissez-faire capitalism imposed by the West. The other, other film is Thursday, February 28th. It's Drum from South Africa. For more information about Africa events on campus here at MSU, go to africa.msu.edu. The second event that I want to tell you about is a conference on media communication and sport in Africa, which is taking place at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, February 22nd, 23rd. And it's part of the Sports in Africa Network uh, conference. Uh, sports in Africa Network uh, seeks to foster some meaningful dialogue on the interface of sports and Africa among academics, practitioners, media, NGOs, and the public. And some of the themes that will be analyzed in this conference are communication for sports and development, international media coverage of African sports, media and women's sports, uh, media and the 2010 World Cup. For more details, visit our website. Thanks very much, Peter. And that brings today's program to a close. Please join us in two weeks when we will speak with South African media scholar Sean Jacobs from the University of Michigan about mainstream media coverage of Africa in the West, which he covers on his terrific blog, Leo Africanus. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and Chris Johnson. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. You can also get in touch with us by email at Africa dot podcast at matrix dot msu dot edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>